Cool. Where to begin? Um, could you introduce yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, my name is Gabriel. I work at Thrasio. It's an e-commerce firm as a business intelligence and strategy manager, um, which basically means I do data analytics all day to make decisions about uh, pretty much anything. But my focus right now is on launching new products using our existing brands as a sort of launching point. We met at MIT. Maybe we can start with like what growing up in Puerto Rico is like. Yeah, grew up in Puerto Rico, um, born and raised there um, until I left for college. Um, you know, it was uh, an awesome place to grow up. My sense is Puerto Rico is like the best place in the world. And I'm sure you have a, a great bias as well towards, you know, Ecuador or uh, other places that you've lived in, but um, this is it, not the best place in the world. <laughs> well, I, I will say that for me, I truly believe Puerto Rico is. I I know that it has a lot of shortcomings in many ways, um, but I think that all in all, I think that the quality of life there is just really high. Um, you have great weather year round. You have beautiful beaches that you can just a fifteen to thirty minute drive away. Um, you can talk in Spanish or in English and people will understand you. Um, you can easily move between the United States and Puerto Rico without any friction. You can move to other countries without any friction because we also have a US passport. We have um, a great amount of talent artistically and culturally, uh, just a lot of history that we've, I think, um, really, uh, it's really rich. Um, and I think more so than any other state in the United States, and I'm going to kind of just go ahead and say that, um, I think, I think just the amount of history that Puerto Rico brings and not just because, you know, I, I say it's a little bit of bias, but like Puerto Rico has 500 years of history, uh, you know, from the 1500s all the way to today. Um, you know, it, it was populated before the United States was really even a country, you know, Puerto Rico was already a country. So I think, you know, it comes from a lot of a lot of history um, and and a lot of great cultures and mix of cultures between the Africans that came from Africa and the indigenous people that you know were there, and then also the Europeans who kind of came and and colonized the islands. Um, so, again, very biased, but I love I love Puerto Rico and I can happily talk to its shortcomings, but lots of strengths as well. Uh, also, growing up there, yeah, there. You couldn't speak English to anyone, could you? Like Ricardo's parents don't speak English. Ah, I, don't think. I think I think it's a little family dependent. Um, I was very lucky uh, in a way to have, um, you know, to be I think the fourth, maybe fourth or fifth generation in my family to go to college. Um, so, you know, I was lucky that I had all this sort of genetic pressure to, you know, go out and uh, educate myself. And I think a lot of them. Even back in the 1880s, you know, my ancestors were speaking English and going back and forth between the United States and Puerto Rico for business trips. And um, yeah, so your family. Yeah. yeah. And probably many families, but um, you growing up there, did you did you get to go to the U.S. or like outside of Puerto Rico a lot? Or was it kind of just like this island is the world? Yeah, I, I had a very different, I think, perspective to many of my peers um, I, I did get a lot of exposure to the U.S. I started traveling 
to the US um, probably when I was two. Um, so going back and forth, you know, to Disney World was one of my favorite places, um, but also Connecticut, um, Florida, because my aunt, actually my mom's sister, um, moved to, to the States uh, after Puerto Rico and sort of remained there. Um, she never moved back to Puerto Rico. And so she, you know, made her family over there. So I always had that very close family relative living in, um, you know, in the States that gave us an excuse to really go there and, um, you know, explore where they were living. Probably the best example of that is through summer camps. I would go and, you know, spend time at these like English speaking only summer camps, right. And kind of be thrown in the mix there and see like how well I can do. Um, so, you know, kind of put, put, you know, me in a moment of necessity and, and try to make my way through it. Um, and try to remember as much as I could about, you know, my grade school English grammar and, you know, also I think Puerto Rico is a pretty special place in the sense that, um, growing up to, um, I had a lot of media that was in English and uh, a lot of American cultural norms that were sort of, I paid attention to from early, you know, cartoons, uh, to, uh, movies and, and, uh, you know, another TV show. So I, I was always very attuned to sort of American culture um, from when I was a young uh, kid. So how, how did you end up going uh, to MIT? How did you find that experience and then transitioning out? Um, yeah, so, so to MIT, um, I think I, I really got to understand MIT through my parents. Um, you know, my mom and dad both went to Cornell and had, uh, you know, uh, some friends that had gone to MIT um, and, and, you know, that is kind of puts me in a position of an advantage of just even knowing about MIT from, you know, middle school, right. That you can really start thinking about like, Oh, you know, where could you go to college? You know, MIT is interesting. Why? It's like, well, they do a lot of these scientific discoveries and, you know, they are good at math and I'm like, I'm good at math. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to be there. Um, and, and also, uh, apart from my parents, I think I was very lucky that, you know, one of my best friends, you know, in, at MIT was Ricardo. And, um, at, you know, although we weren't necessarily like best friends in Puerto Rico, we had met there. We had become, you know, acquaintances from uh, participating in these like math Olympics. And I would say like a humongous percentage of the people who go to places like MIT and um, and other technical institutions, you know, Georgia Tech or uh, Harvard, uh, will will say that you know that math Olympics were a humongous source of inspiration from having to you know interface with other you know smart smart people, whether they come from private or public schools. So that was kind of a great unifier in a way. Uh, but it's interesting because even though it was a great unifier in terms of bringing people from public and private schools together, still there's a disproportionate amount of people at MIT that are coming from private schools versus public schools in the island. And so you have to think that it's not about talent. You know, I think talent is uniformly distributed pretty much throughout the world. I think the issue is the opportunity set that the people in different uh, you know, paths of lives uh, of life have. Um, and I think that just perhaps like 
familial monetary issues affected their decision to apply to, you know, institutions like MIT, um, you know, lack of information, lack of support from parents, lack of support from their immediate vicinity. Um, so I think I was very lucky to have had both parents and sort of locally at, through those math Olympics um, with my friends to kind of encourage each other to kind of dream big. Um, and uh, yeah, so I applied, I applied early and got in, um, which was a huge blessing, not having to go and apply anywhere else. Um, and, and the other thing I would say is like, a, from a point of privilege, my family uh, was able to put me through some summer camps uh, in high school um, at, uh, I don't know if you know this boarding school, but Choate Rosemary Hall is, you know, a, a boarding school in Connecticut. That's, you know, one of the best in the nation. And they have a, a summer program where you take classes like in economics or anatomy. And, you know, that helps also create a different perspective on, you know, where all these other people are coming from in the nation and, uh, and what they're learning and kind of opens the doors a little bit and being able to highlight that as a part of your experiences in, in your application. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I applied early, got in, and uh, kind of the rest is history. So maybe let's move on to th Thrasio. Yeah. Thrasio? How do you say it? Thrasio. Thrasio, jeez. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that they had raised like $3 billion last December. Mm -hmm. You guys are huge now. Massive yeah. company. Holy shit. Yeah. When you joined, how many people were there? Yeah, when I joined in... Um, uh, September of 2018, there was uh, three employees and two founders. So with me, I was the sixth person in the company altogether. How did you find them? Um, you know, this is one of my kind of favorite stories and highlights the value of MIT very nicely. Um, I was actually at uh, an alumni brunch uh, that MIT put together, kind of just showing uh, certain alums like that are donors to different programs like Europe and others, kind of having the students go into that brunch and talk about their experiences, having been part of those programs as well. Um, I had an opportunity to sit down with, uh, with this person um, at the same table. His name is Carlos Cashman, and um, we didn't really talk at all in in the actual brunch. Uh, but actually, afterwards, when we all kind of step stepped out of of the table, kind of shook hands and said, you know, he asked me if I was a senior and if I was looking for a job, and I thought that, yeah, I mean, I am looking for a job. I was a senior in college. I'm definitely uh, looking for entrepreneurial opportunities. I explained to him that my goals are to be a startup founder eventually and that I wanted to, you know, test those things, uh, the, the, the skills necessary to be a startup founder. He actually surprised me saying that he was a serial entrepreneur, that he had started, you know, a dozen companies in his life, um, had exited a few, had failed at some, um, and had just all this wealth of experience in, in building entrepreneurial ventures. I thought that that was one of the awesome, most awesome things in the world. You know, it's not every day that you meet a serial entrepreneur. Um, and having an option to work under him was extremely appealing to me. So he asked me if I had a resume to send him to his email um, that he would take a look and then we would connect. Um, and I actually sent him my resume. Um, and 
didn't get a reply for like two months. Um, like just complete ghost. Um, so remember this is like March of 2017 uh, or no, 2018, I'm sorry. And so in two months, it's April, May, like I'm about to graduate, right? Um, and I don't have a job yet. I'm still looking for opportunities. I'm starting to expand my kind of option set. Um, but I actually get a response from Carlos and he says, um, sorry, your, your, actually your email went to my spam folder. Um, I'm so sorry I didn't reply sooner. I uh, would love to see if you're still interested in potentially exploring a job with uh, Thrasio. And um, I'd like to put you in touch with like our VP of brand management, Stephanie Fox, who ultimately, you know, kind of interviewed me. Um, we talked about, you know, what I would be doing and, and kind of what I bring to the table. Um, Stephanie, I think, was also an entrepreneur. She had done his, her own company just before joining Thrasio. So I knew I was gonna come into good company of people who have done it before and, and be able to learn from people like them. Um, so yeah, um, they extended an offer and I was between two different options. And ultimately I, I took the more risky option, really joining as an early employee, uh, seeing what I can learn. Uh, even if I, it doesn't work out for whatever reason, I was just excited to be there and learn how, how to build my own company. And, um, you know, I think the, what happened afterwards is an incredible journey that, uh, you know, we went from six employees to 1300 within three years, um, kind of really found product market fit with what we were offering, which was really, you know, we have acquired these companies, these assets that sell on Amazon and have the ability to scale them up more than they were before, um, we acquired them, um, have been able to raise a lot of funding really quickly, uh, in, in many parts because of the business model, but also because of the connections of people like Carlos and, and our other co-founder, co-CEO, uh, Josh Silverstein, um, who, you know, between the two of them have launched, you know, 20 companies and had all of this Rolodex of people who they could tap into and sort of pitch the idea without any kind of friction and, and be able to like get people excited about it. Um, that to me was incredible to see, to witness uh, just like the power of, of having that network and having it, having done your companies before, it makes the subsequent, the subsequent companies a lot easier to sort of form and, and build on. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, what were like some unexpected learnings that you've picked up over the last four years? Um, maybe I guess, yeah, Im impactful and or like surprising. Oh yeah. Uh, so just thinking about how, how options, uh, stock options affect, you know, your, your personal taxes and, um, certain actions that you take with stock options, uh, will, will have different consequences, um, at, you know, different stages of the game. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot that startup founders and startup employees need to know in order to be like as optimal as possible with, with, um, with options and their tax consequences. So, um, it was honestly, extremely surprising, like the level of depth that you can go to in understanding uh, those concepts and, you know, probably taken me the better part of a year to, to kind of really dial in, understand what each, each action has as a consequence and be able to sort of now, I think, be much more comfortable with understanding for the future, if I ever become a startup employee again, what the stock options represent, what are the complications with them and, um, 
you know, have just a lot more preparation for that. So, so that's been surprising and I think impactful and hopefully will serve me for the rest of my life. Yeah, for sure. Or as a founder, like helping your employees, I've been pretty bad at that. <laughs> I, I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, you know, when you, you guys grow a little bit more, you'll, you'll definitely find the time to do it. I think it's just one of the most critical things that, um, you know, early employees need to deal with and founders and other people just make the assumption that people will have to by themselves and will, will sort of figure it out as they go. And I, I think, I think that's a little bit of a lazy way out in my opinion. I think that there's, um, not everybody really understands what, uh, the extent of the risks that they're taking are in regards to startups and liquidity and. Um, the tax consequences. And it's a lot, honestly. I mean, again, it takes, it took me at least a year to really get comfortable with this. And so I think that anything that the founder and early employees can do to facilitate those conversations with each other are incredibly, incredibly powerful. And um, I think it goes a long way in retaining employees. I think it goes a long way in uh, just plain education about something that's complicated about the world. And even going through those problems and understanding scenarios, I think helps me like better scenario plan for anything else, whether it be professionally or personally. Do you have any general like high level things? Like should we, should I always do the 83B or like exercise in order to, to make your tax bracket appropriate or um, like don't do loans to buy your options or like what, what is the, are there high level takeaways or is it very case specific or move to Puerto Rico also? Uh, yeah, or find, or find certain jurisdictions that are more, uh, you know, amenable to, to that. I think there are high level takeaways. Um, I think in general, if, uh, you're looking to minimize the amount of taxes that you're going to be paying, the general theme is exercise early. Uh, the, the longer you wait to exercise your, uh, vested options, um, the more likelihood you will find that the fair market value of those options, which is essentially just like, you know, what people agree that this is the value of a certain stock. Um, and you know, it has to be done with like an independent auditor. There's a lot of complexities there, but what you need to know is just like the, the stock that you're awarded has a value at all times, um, whether you know it or not. And so the longer you wait to exercise those options that you have vested, the longer or the, the higher the risk you run that the value of those options increase uh, over time. And so even though you might be able to exercise at let's say one cent per, per option, uh, the value might be you know, at $10 uh, by the time you start exercising at one cent. And that, that change or that spread is what they call the spread between the one cents and the $10 is, is taxable. Um, if you have ISOs, um, and if you have NSOs is taxed differently, the, the mechanisms of how they're taxed is irrelevant. The general gist is the more you let that spread grow, the higher you're going to have of a tax bill in the end of the year. So if you can exercise as soon as the stock vests, then the fair market value of the stock is pretty close to the exercise price meaning that the spread is zero. So the tax of zero is still zero. Um, so being able to sort of, ex, you know, really take advantage of that, um, is, is what I would recommend people. Um, and obviously there are complications. Sometimes the exercise price is not one cent. 
many times it could be $10. Uh, and even if the fair market value of the stock is $10, uh, where your tax is zero, you still have to put up $10 per option that, that you know, you're willing to exercise. So, you know, it, it's kind of like a balance, right? Uh, you want to exercise as early as possible, but you don't want to, you know, pay the, uh, too much exercise costs if you're not sure that the company will succeed in the end. Uh, but in general, if you're an early employee, um, there's very little risk to exercising as early as possible. The wait, the the more you wait, the higher the risk. Wow. Okay. Amazing. I'm learning so much. Gabriel Hinaria. And and there's a lot of 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 resources. My my favorite places to go. Uh, I'll recommend uh, two different places. Um, first, Carda.com is is this platform where a lot of companies host their uh, stock options on, and they have a lot of educational resources that I learned initially from. And then actually there's a new, um, great platform. I, I, I learned about just recently called compound. Um, it's started by tech entrepreneurs who face the same issues that I'm talking about and decided that they didn't want anybody else to also sit, you know, have to go into it blindly. They've published a manual that goes over a lot, I mean, if not all of the sort of circumstances that many early stage entrepreneurs and founders find themselves in, in regards to equity, stock options, price, uh, taxes, um, and, and their, their manual is to me by far the most comprehensive and well-explained, uh, sort of documentation that exists on this, uh, you know, hopefully we can put a link or something, uh, you know, accompanying the podcast, because I think. Anybody who's in this circumstance should definitely read some of the materials that they posted. I'm curious, okay, what would you do differently if you like, I mean, I guess for, from my perspective, like that is huge hypergrowth. Like I experienced a tiny bit of that at scale, but that range from six to over a thousand, thousand and a half almost uh, people, um, there's like a lot of organizational slotting of people and like navigating that growth yourself and yeah i'm happy to share actually i thought a lot about it um so so one thing i'll just give justice to was the fact that when i joined thrasio um i was directly out of college so really had not worked other than internships before and not seen how sort of corporate America works in the day to day. Um, I think in justice to myself, I, I don't think I could have done it any differently. Um, if I'm, if I was part of that same, you know, uh, cohort of people who just come out of college, land in a startup and experience this hyper growth, I think it's really, really challenging to sort of position yourself in the best way. Like, there's way too many like serendipitous things that would happen along the way that you could not possibly have predicted or controlled or, you know, really positioned yourself in any particular way. I don't think to really, you know, put yourself in a position where you're now like a VP and, you know, you're 27 or whatever. I think, um, it's, it's really challenging. Um, I, I think, uh, and, and maybe part of it too, now I can say with some more certainty is that, um, when, when we started, um, you know, the, the founder had a lot of experience. He had done already 12 different startups. I mean, between the two, like I said, it was over 20. Um, so, so they knew exactly who to hire for, for different things. So they didn't really need to sort of promote internally. 
Um, I think they could just bring in some other contacts from the people that they had worked with in the past to serve as the VP of, you know, operations or the VP of technology or the VP of finance or whatever it may be. So th there, there was definitely less opportunity for people like me who definitely had a lot of internal knowledge and understood the processes that we, you know, undertook to, you know, operate day to day for me to kind of level up um, because, you know, it, it, there was a lot of outside um, people that would come in and, and, you know, I would actually train them, you know, and I was for, for a long while, I was actually the L and D manager for the company. So I would train a lot of the executives and even just like anybody who came through the door on how Amazon works and, and some of the processes that we take uh, internally to make uh, businesses better and scale more efficiently. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I don't think that there's anything that I would do that I would say, you could position yourself better in in this particular circumstance especially when you're after college um or not even career-wise just maybe like i don't know asking for a mentorship earlier yeah so I, I, that's making a, more friends I don't it's, know. it's a it's a great great comment so you um about mentorship i i think that was one of the best things that i actually did position myself well to do and i would 100 percent repeat that if i if i had the opportunity to do that anytime whether it's now then or in the future, I think mentorship is a really important part of uh, growing personally um, and, and having someone to be a sounding board for um, ideas and, and just general life progression, uh, whether professionally or not. Um, so when I remember the story, how I met Carlos, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about is how I was looking to learn from him how to do your own company. Um, and, and the corollary to that is, I asked Carlos to become my mentor if he was a, willing to do that um, and sort of just asking him to sit with me on like a quarterly basis, talk about um, different things that were going on in the business, different things that were going on in life, just to kind of all mesh together, synthesize some of the learnings that we had from running the business that quarter, you know, what did, what did it mean for if you wanted to do your own startup, like how did, how can you transfer the, that knowledge over for, for your own, you know, gain in the future. Um, and I, I still have that with Carlos. Um, it's been, you know, almost four years and every quarter we still meet and talk about this stuff. Um, over time it's evolved into different things, right? Like I've become more knowledgeable, um, to it, as to how the business works and how any business works in general. So, so it's been a lot more, uh, sort of mature conversations happening and, you know, now versus initially. Um, but I did set myself up for that. And I explicitly asked that that would be one of the main things that I was looking forward to when I joined the company. And he very so kindly agreed to, to provide that. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to, to say that that's been one of the most important parts that I've taken away from, from Thrasio. That's awesome. Direct relationship with the CEO. Uh, wow. Gotta turn that into a podcast, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, totally. And, and I would say just the second thing too, apart from putting yourself out there for mentorship, um, I think it's as, as a startup evolves, you have to kind of go from generalist into specialists uh, role. And that's really important for, for every person to realize where they thrive the most. Um, I think I'm probably a better generalist than I am a specialist. I'm able to put on different hats at any given time, kind of go across organizational lines and 
bring people into agreement uh, in decision making. Um, you know, have developing have developed those like personal connections to to you know different people across the org um, and, and kind of create something where potentially might have taken longer or maybe even never happened. So like collaboration between sort of functional departments. So I would say like, it's really important that you understand as a company evolves, the need for generalists um, uh, probably diminishes, although it doesn't go away completely. I think it just kind of changes the way that you call yourself um, and, and, and also just like the authority that you have could potentially be a little bit more diluted, um, but you still need to have generalists that are able to kind of cross collaborate you know, between departments. It just takes on a slightly different form um, and for me, I think I've sort of molded myself into what I think is like a generalist with sort of specialized knowledge of like, uh, sort of a T shape, let's say, right. Like I have the ability to be very kind of cross cutting and then also know a decent chunk about how Amazon, uh, product launches work and how you would, you know, strategize around that. And I'm able to talk sort of deeply about it, but at the same time, I'm able to kind of drag myself out and, and then cross uh, cross departments and, and think of, uh, how other people would see a, a similar problem and approach it slightly differently. And, uh, I think that's put me in a very, uh, in a great opportunity to learn, um, and develop relationships. So again, back to my initial goal of using this time to learn how to do my own company, I think the best way to kind of approach that is to, um, keep yourself in, in a generalist role as long as you can, and then evolve with the company where you can become specialized, but keep, keep knowledge, keep that in the back of your mind. How can you be a generalist, even though you're within a certain department now that, you know, needs you to be present there, um, and sort of offer yourself to your leaders as like, Hey, you need to talk to someone in brand ops. Like, let me, let me reach out. Cause I have a, uh, you know, a good contact that I can maybe get their take on, uh, before you kind of go down the path of trying to form like perfect processes or whatever. I'm, kind of creating those MVPs of relationships and, and processes before uh, you need to heavily invest in, in building out something. That's awesome. Um, for the biz, business intelligence team that you're on, um, is that different than like biz ops? Like sometimes in startups, there's this biz ops analytics role, which is heavily kind of generalist oriented, trying to like just solve all the dysfunctions within an org. They do special projects. Is this different or is that similar or sit within the same department department? Yeah, I would say that it's within my department. It, 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 it is more like that, um, sort of just trying to solve different dysfunctions within the department. Um, and then I do have a little bit of an influence outside of my department, uh, because we, you know, being early stage, there's still a lot of, uh, need for building processes across departments, like I was just talking about. So I do pinch hit, um, if there was like a biz ops role that was more catered towards the org as a whole, um, you know, I, I do pinch hit as a representative whenever, you know, it's, it's needed. Um, but that, that one's really hard to crack because, uh, you know, how much autonomy do you give departments versus like a central unit that, you know, helps control things. Um, that's been a, I don't think that we've necessarily done that well. Um, and I think that there's still a lot of room for improvement in how you build autonomy within departments, but also enough connective tissue across departments that, you know, things are not siloed. 
um, I would say that's probably one of the still opportunities, main opportunities that exist at the company. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty young place. It's not fully mature. Uh, there's probably a lot of that that's normal at this stage, right? But um, yeah, I remember talking to by people. By age, but not by employees, right? Like, I think that's part of the like craziness, right? Yeah, like, for thing. sure. And like just coordinating all those people with like processes that are under development. I'm sure as the learning coordinator, you experience the full brunt of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. But uh, in terms of like uh, your day to day, doing like data stuff, um, that sounds like such a rich and interesting place to sit. Yeah, I guess. Can you say more about like what's. Uh, What's interesting about it? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, you know, specialized knowledge in, in Amazon is hard to come by. Um, it's still a pretty niche uh, subject for, for most businesses, um, although so many businesses are starting to sell on Amazon because they realize the power of getting customer traffic and lead generation from, from Amazon is, is incredibly powerful. I think somewhere around like, you know, like... 50% or more of all product searches in the internet originate on Amazon, uh, right? So like when you're looking for something to buy, 50% of all of those searches originate on Amazon. Um, so a lot of customers use Amazon almost like as a search engine for products. Um, and so I think, I think businesses start to realize like, if, you know, you, you can definitely build your own direct to consumer presence and, you know, build off of Amazon, but there's a huge opportunity cost to doing that. Um, if you, if you focus on that exclusively. So, so a lot of businesses are now starting to go like omni-channel, um, uh, which is what they call sort of just being able to sell yeah, through your D2C website, through Amazon, plus also through Walmart or at retail level, like target, um, you know, brick and mortar traditional retail. Um, and so, yeah, so what this is building is an incredible wealth of data right about how products sell um, what customers are willing to buy all sort of centralized within this marketplace that is amazon and you start to see like these dynamics that so many economists you know would would love to really dive in deeper um but this idea of like uh, whenever there's a, a product that's priced lower than an existing product that you know given quality then you'll see the market share drop from this one to this other one um and I think that that's a that's an, an amazing time in history where you can actually start realizing these data, uh, you know, signals in real time, uh, rather than having to wait until the end of the year until you see you know tally up all your sales or whatever. Um, you know, you can see this right, when you're Walmart, right? Fifteen years ago. Yeah, exactly. When when Walmart decides to send you like here's the you know recap of your sales in the in the past year, it's like no, right? Like this real-time online presence allows you to kind of start at least with a humongous sample size. I'm not saying it's going to be everything, but like a pretty big sample size, understand like how your products perform relative to the competition and um, you know, what kind of signals you can derive from that. So for me, it's extremely exciting sort of day to day to come up with new logic to analyzing markets and saying like this subcategory has a, like few products and the market is very concentrated. Right. A lot of the market share is being, uh, you know, uh, enjoyed by a handful of products versus this other category might have a wider spread, less concentration, 
um, what, what does that tell you about your ability to compete? If it's like highly concentrated and you launch the product in that, would you be able to compete with the incumbents? Um, uh, versus if the market was fragmented and you launch the product in there, which one would be easier to compete? Uh, and you know, the hypothesis is that the one that's more fragmented would lend itself to competition more so than the one that's sort of heavily uh, consolidated. Um, and so we, we sort of test these hypotheses out by actually, you know, going and launching products. Uh, and then we have a feedback loop that we can then use to train our models and say, you know, is, is it actually happening? Like we think it's happening. Like, do we actually gain market share over time when we launch a product? How long does it take? What's the sort of lag in between when you start versus when you actually start seeing sort of meaningful sales come through. Um, and then can you use that to predict future launches and, and sort of de-risk your, your, um, your ability to launch products. So I think this is a nascent area of data analytics. Um, and I, Amazon more and more is providing data to, to vendors and, or to merchants like us, right? Um, they're sort of opening up a little bit of their treasure trove uh, over time, I think partly due to um, sort of uh, regulatory pressure of, you know, anti-competitive um, accusations and them wanting to say like, no, yeah, no, that, no. Was a, that was a question I had is like, yeah. are you basically trying to preempt Amazon basics and like corner a niche and make it so that your product's so efficient that like basics couldn't enter or something? Yeah. Um, I, it has to be basically. Right? Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's an, Sort of an oversimplification, but yes, absolutely. Like we we try to sort of corner a certain inefficient category that we think we can actually you know put a product in and take up market share. Uh, we use our existing data set to to be able to derive more accurate models of that, um, and that's when we start realizing these so-called economies of scale of the aggregator business, right? Where we've aggregated all of these brands, all of these different categories. No one has enough as much data as we do, except for Amazon itself. You know, what can we do with that? And um, yeah, that's that's the opportunity. Um, and I think it's extremely exciting. Do you get the sales quantities of your competitors to know how much market share you actually have, or is that an estimate? Yeah, it's an estimate actually. So so we uh, or a lot of other people um, have tried to kind of estimate the amount of sales velocity for each product depending on what. Um, Amazon publishes this thing called the bestseller rank. And it's essentially a ranking of all of the products in a category uh, labeled one through, you know, 18,000 or whatever. Um, and they sort of rank them based on the sort of velocity of the units that they're selling. Um, and so let's say that you had a lot of your own proprietary data and you knew how the bestseller ranked for your product changed over time. You can start building sort of certain coefficients, right? of units yeah and percentage of reviews yes that translate into sales exactly so you start being able to run sort of regression analysis on on actual data versus estimates and and sort of come up with a more accurate uh point and so cert certain uh vendors have started doing that there's very few i would say there's no like universally trusted source of truth of these estimates everybody kind of has their own spin on it um i think the the, the magic here lies in trying to take all of them and then seeing if like some combination of the vendors plus your actual data will allow you to be better at estimating, um, you know, actuals than, than any vendor exit that exists or any other merchant that exists out there. Of, of course, uh, unless you're Amazon, in which case you have all the data and you can just 
you know, run that. But if you're Amazon, you also have to face the uh, Federal Trade Commission and uh, you, you can't leverage that data as we've seen with, you know, Amazon's own brands. And if you do it, then you're going to get under scrutiny. And so, you know, we're in a good opportunity to basically say like, we're not Amazon. We're a very small portion of Amazon. Um, and we think we can find a better method than, than anybody, um, any other of our competitors. Is it essential to have, I mean, it sounds like for the business model, like it's advantageous for sure to have a large amount of data to kind of fine tune stuff. Um, I'm curious to what extent like, growth hacking and success and profit margins are tied to this like deep data uh, driven focus? Or if you as Gabriel with like all your knowledge or some subset of Thracia, Thracia could go and just like do consulting for like brands, I'm sure there's probably a lot of best practices that you guys have developed um, and just ways of like looking at the platform and thinking about it yeah. that could probably accelerate sales. But I'm wondering to what extent that data edge really makes you dominant everyone says you know big data but like maybe it's just some obvious stuff and like making cost attractive versus the competitors yeah no i mean totally i think that i would say you can do a lot with just knowing your relative price to your competitors right like and i say that because i would think and actually i i would say that amazon promotes products that are lower priced, right? So, so if you think about it, when you price a product lower than your competitors, you're likely to sell more units per hour than your competitors. If everything else equal, you have a lower price, you're likely to sell more units per hour than the rest of your competitors. Amazon then says, okay, great. Now you're selling more units. So I'm gonna bring you up in the best seller rank. When you hit number one, you actually get this little orange badge that you may have seen on Amazon that says bestseller uh, in, in a certain category. And that is just one product that can get the badge at any given time. And the badge in many of our sort of analyses has shown that you can increase the conversion rate of your product by up to 20, 30% uh, versus if you don't have the badge and you have the same price, right? So, so I think it's really important that you understand that Amazon focuses on the benefit of the customer, like they're customer obsessed. And what's best for the customer is lower prices, wider selection, lower prices. Um, so, so there is an incentive to definitely lower your prices as much as possible while still making, you know, a healthy profit margin. Um, it, but it's what a marketplace is meant to do. It's supposed to find the profit optimal price in which, you know, firms are willing to compete in. Um, and, and still sort of, you know, even if it's like a marginal, marginal profit, even if profit equals zero, right? Like that's the ultimate endpoint when you have a super efficient marketplace. So in terms of, you know, the levers you can pull, you know, absolutely. You can, you know, drive price lower as much as possible. But I think the reason why data is so important, even still knowing this is that, um, you still need to know like where potentially the arbitrage is. Right. You need to understand like where, where you're going to be able to make the most profit per dollar invested. Um, and that's really what you're trying to kind of calculate here. You know, eventually it's going to go to profit equals zero. It's, you know, the steady state of that, but can you make money in the, in the meantime, and how would you deploy your, you know, $3 billion if you had it in order to, to make the most return, um, over, the, over the time, uh, before profit equals zero.
and and by the way, I would say profit equals zero is this like ideal state that you know is very hard to achieve in actuality. Um, you know, I, I I always would say there's like constant dynamics in which a new product enters at a slightly different quality point and consumer behavior changes so that you know suddenly like profit doesn't equal zero anymore. Maybe for that particular quality, but because a new quality came in, you know, it changes you know the dynamics. And of course, there's a lot of fixed costs. Um, and as fixed cost increases, like you know, we've seen with inflation, so you have to increase your prof your your price as well. And so there's a lot of dynamics that kind of create dislocations, you know, every day. Um, and you know, part of my job is to figure out like, you know, what's signal, what's noise, and and how to best take advantage of it. Do you have a moment or like a decision within the company or a, some kind of project that you are most uh, proud of contributing to? I do actually. Um, if you think about the business model for Thrasio, is this idea that individually the businesses that we acquire, uh, let's say they sum up to one, and so if you put one brand next to the other, you know, one plus one in theory would equal two, right? Like that's the traditional math that you've been sort of taught in high school. But what we try to say is one plus one equals three, right? Like the sum of the parts is. Uh, is the, the sum of the whole is greater than the parts, right? So like the, it's really important for us to realize that scale and the way that you do it is by finding efficiencies that previously weren't discovered or, you know, weren't realized. Um, whether that comes from lower shipping costs because you're now able to, you know, stuff a container full of different products that ordinarily wouldn't necessarily have come into the same container uh, because you know they're two different brand owners, why would they necessarily share container space? Well, now no, you're the same brand owner. You can put everything in the same container and then ship it to you know um, you know a three PL that you also control, so that you cut the middleman out. Uh, and so a lot of it is right, really cutting a lot of the operational costs of the middleman um, when you have a, enough volume that justifies it, right? Um, so so finding those economies of scale will only happen through efficient processes. And my biggest moment and sort of contribution, I would say that makes me the proudest is um, I led the implementation of uh, the center for where all of the documentation of our SOPs is housed under. So essentially anybody who had a certain process that they did on their day to day, I was sort of the lead instigator for saying, hey, can you document that in this central repository, which we use, it's called Guru. Um, it's sort of a central knowledge management base. It's uh, sort of a startup that, you know, is also trying to make waves and, you know, making sure that everybody has uh, knowledge of whatever process exists. And this is the flashcards, right? Yeah. Well, essentially, yeah, it's, it, it's a, instead of a wiki where you have to like, you know, no potential like HTML and JavaScript and whatever to code up and you know, have to continuously update manually, or you have to have specialized people doing so, you know, Guru tries to make it so that the owner of the information is the person who wrote it. Um, and it's very easy for them to update it over time. You have version control. Um, you are able to leave comments and sort of cross check each other. So I, I really kind of took it upon myself to lead the implementation of that. Whereas before everything was sort of scattered around in Google Docs, uh, in Slack, in uh, emails um, and sort of asking people to be like, 
if it doesn't exist in Guru, it doesn't exist, right? And, and trying to really push that uh, way of thinking so that in the future, say that the person who knew this particular knowledge left the company, there was still like an actual repository where their knowledge still lived. And, and trying to create a knowledge management culture uh, was kind of, I would say, the proudest moment for me um, when we started seeing those like the user and adoption rate of, of the platform, you know, explode um, from just a few people a month to, you know, hundreds and now, you know, at some point a thousand uh, people using it every month to check knowledge, to update documentation. Um, and I would say like these so-called trade secrets are, you know, the bread and butter for why we can actually realize those economies of scale. Um, and you should be able to sort of transplant that body of knowledge anywhere else. And, and the benefits are still there and you're able to train people on how to, you know, take advantage of the SOP and, and then, you know, move forward with, uh, operational excellence. So to me, I would say, uh, being the lead on that was the most proud moment I have. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. Congrats, dude. Wow. Yeah. Like I, having seen Guru in action at Clever, um, being onboarded with it and having the knowledge person like pounding it into everyone, you need to use it. And then also being at scale and uh, as an API, like docs or everything and being part of the, the documentation team also at README, like cultural change and documentation is not, uh, is the most like underappreciated work that pays long-term benefits, especially for an organization like this. Um, and it's amazing that you're able to, to get that adoption um, even as the company is growing. Uh, like it's easy for it to kind of stall and fail. So the fact that the project went through and it's in use, I guess, is amazing. Thank you. I mean, there's obviously a lot of other things I would have loved to, you know, continue optimizing. Um, but, but at some point, you know, the biggest thing is you get this critical mass of people who are using it and sort of tries to be self-sustaining. Um, really the first year was the grind is trying to get that critical mass of documentation in there that people wanted to go and see and, um, uh, and yeah, so in a way I was lucky that I got in before the company grew to 1300 so that, you know, by the time the 1300th person came in, they had no choice. It's, you know, it's in guru, go check it out. Right. Um, so implementing that early was a very critical, uh, part of, of, of Thrasio, I would say. And, uh, for me personally, it was, uh, very exciting. You're, you're obviously still at Thrasio. Sounds like it's pretty awesome there. Um, but like maybe, I don't know, suppose that you're, you're not there, you know, 10 years from now. Um, I assume like, what are, what are some life milestones you, you want to aim for? You have family, like, uh, do you still want to find your own company? Are you happy with the building, um, as an early employee? Like that sounds pretty awesome. Also <laughs> got to have a hand in it, but curious what, um, what might be in the future for Gabriel? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't shy away from, from being a founder. I, I think I've built up enough confidence and, you know, knowledge about how businesses run and how to create a successful company. Uh, obviously it won't. Or founding like a product, just have a product, passive income, selling on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, that, that that's I, it's something I've thought about for sure. It's like launching my own brand and just kind of taking all in everything that I've learned and just doing it myself, right. At this like smaller scale. And I think that's totally an opportunity. I, I think I will be a man of multiple avenues that I participate in 
you know, that being one of them, real estate investing being another, uh, you know, just like fintech is really exciting for me. I think that um, there's a lot of great, awesome opportunities out there, especially in the developing world where not a lot of the infrastructure has been built yet. And, you know, fintech stands to be able to make things a lot more efficient for people uh, and, and reap humongous gains, you know, not just for the company, but for the citizenship of whatever country, you know, isn't still, you know, doing digital payments or like investing uh, fully from their phones and other things that I think have, you know, really expanded the amount of time and energy that we have available to do other things, right? Because, you know, you don't want to spend your whole day investing and thinking about finances. You want to spend a fraction of your day doing that and the rest of your day into more interesting, more noble, more artistic things. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'll, I'll probably, the other thing I would say is I tend to gravitate towards working with people in any way I can. Um, so even talking to you, Andy, about opportunities that you see in the world and talking to other friends about opportunities they see in the world, I think whatever comes out of those opportunities, whether it be a company, whether it be a product, whether it be a nonprofit, whether it be anything, I think that's what excites me the most. It's like those serendipitous moments of, oh shit, this is a big problem. And I had no idea. I think I could potentially add some value to this. Um, I, I think I'll be in constant conversations with my peers and, and friends. Um, and, and ultimately organically that'll come up and manifest itself in whatever way. I definitely do see myself as an early company person. I think it's probably not in my skill set uh, to join sort of a, a company at a later stage, just because many of them, their roles are highly specialized. And as I said earlier, I think my biggest skill set is on the generalist uh, side of things, which tend to be more catered towards startups and, and smaller companies. Uh, but I would totally also join an, uh, a company that was, you know, series A, you know, less than 50 people still figuring things out. I think I still have a lot of value to add in that space too, maybe even series B. Um, now you start getting to series C and D and so on and so forth. It's probably a little bit less, less valuable. Um, so yeah, I think FinTech in general is really cool. I think e-commerce has a lot of growth still inside it. Um, you know, and I would be happy to dive into a, an e-commerce venture with anybody. Um, and, and yeah, I think, uh, startups will be the path for me to continue making a, an impact in the world and, um, Personally, definitely looking forward to buying a house at some point. I think that's just like a good, you know, generational wealth sort of accumulator of sorts. And, and that's how historically people have done it. So I think that's important. Also having a good partner, life partner that you can always count on, on being there and supporting you throughout tough and great times, both um, being able to travel the world, uh, see different places that ordinarily uh, you wouldn't know or taste different foods that you ordinarily wouldn't have. Um, I'm a big sucker for movies. I would watch a movie or two a week if I had my way of, of doing things. Um, and in a way I already do, <laughs> but, but not, not to the extent I think it's like super programmed, but, um, yeah, I, I think the, the future definitely will be startup driven and, um, passive income as much as I can so that I can enjoy, uh, the great things life has to offer outside of money. Where, where are you buying a house? Where's the uh, hot real estate market? 
Oh my God, that's a question I can't really answer. Uh, I would say bias, full bias ownership here, um, but I, I would buy a house in Puerto Rico, 100%. Like, no question about it. But um, apart from that, I will still have to explore my options. <laughs> cool, man. Thank you. I'm going to stop the recording. Any Any last words? Ah, no, thank you for having me. I think this was awesome. I, as you can see, I loved chatting and, you know, uh, hopefully someone will hear this and have questions. And if they do, then I'm also very happy to answer questions offline. Uh, you want to share like, uh, my LinkedIn or, or email even I'm happy to, you know, put that out there.